Let's pray that God would help us to see the, the relevance of these passages to us today. Heavenly Father, we do pray you will give us alert minds, help us to understand what these passages have to say and what they mean for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've never seen it, but Educating Rita was a 1983 British comedy drama which uh, starred Michael Caine and Julie Walters and won a whole lot of awards. And in fact, it was ranked by the British Film Institute as the 84th best British movie of the 20th century, which is pretty good. Now, apparently the plot basically involves a 26-year-old working-class hairdresser who gets a bit disillusioned with the humdrum nature of her life, and she's looking for more, for something else, something to really express herself with. And so, as I'm sure the first thing which popped into your mind as to what you would need if you really wanted to break out, she enrols in a university English literature course. Of course, that's what you would have thought, isn't it? That's what you do if you wanted to break out. She does that. And uh, her tutor at university is a jaded alcoholic man by the name of Frank. Now, apparently in the movie, Rita's enthusiasm for the task, you know, rekindles Frank's, I guess, love of literature and he becomes less jaded. And my guess is, having never seen the movie, that I'm sure both those characters would learn an awful lot along the way as the two hours unfold. Well, if that movie was all about educating Rita, I think the Gospel of Matthew can be helpfully viewed from the perspective of educating Peter. Have you ever thought about the crash course that Peter gets in what the things of God in the Gospel of Matthew? So back in Matthew chapter 4, Peter and Andrew and some of the other disciples are called. They decide to follow Jesus. And who knows what sort of expectations they would have had as to what that might have entailed. I'm sure a lot of them were pretty much turned on their head because in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And there's so much countercultural, counterintuitive teaching in that. I'm sure that Peter would have been taken by surprise on a number of occasions. But while all this is taking place and as things continue, they see Jesus' incredible, or he sees Jesus' incredible authority exercised. He sees them. He sees him healing people of diseases, uh, exercising demons, exercising authority over nature. He calms the storm, he feeds the 5,000. But then he himself gets in on the act because in Matthew chapter 10, Peter and the other apostles are sent out on a short-term mission, not with OMF, but with, you know, Jesus' group. And are they given authority to teach and to heal and to exercise demons? I mean, what an experience that must have been. Then in chapter 16, Peter goes to the absolute top of the class because when asked, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Tick, full marks, correct. But then he hears that Jesus is going to be killed, something he really doesn't approve of. And then he hears that Jesus' followers are supposed to take up their cross. Don't think that would have been in the ideal sort of, you know, scenario. But then he would have been massively encouraged by the transfiguration after this. He goes up the mountain, he sees Jesus in his divine glory. Moses and Elijah are there. And then the voice of God the Father comes from heaven. I mean, what an experience. And then he comes back down the mountain and his mates can't seem to exercise a demon. And there's all sorts of a hullabaloo going along there. I mean, it's a real crash course which this guy is getting. And he's going to learn a few more lessons today relating to grace and humility, specifically receiving grace 
and showing humility, both matters of which are highly relevant to us today when it comes to becoming a Christian and living as a Christian. So let's uh, think about what we might need to learn. As you know, we're continuing our way through Matthew. We're up to Matthew 17:24 to 18:5. I've called today Grace and Humility. Hopefully you've picked up a sermon uh, handout. And there are two main areas uh, of lesson which Peter needs to learn. Uh, firstly, lesson one relates to the temple tax and the question of grace. And lesson two relates to who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven and the lesson of humility. So let's start with lesson one for Peter and perhaps for us as well, the temple tax, Matthew 17, 24 to 27. Now, what a bizarre story it is. Jesus has Peter pay their temple tax by getting the money from the mouth of a fish. I mean, what on earth is Jesus thinking? Why, why does he do that? What's going on there? Now, when you think about it, um, it's not entirely unbelievable that fish have coins in their mouths. I've read that the fish which inhabited the Lake of Galilee... Uh, were in the habit sometimes of scooping up things which fell onto the bed of the lake and the fish have sometimes been known to be found with, with coins in their mouth. So it's perfectly conceivable that there could have been fish in Lake Galilee with coins in their mouth. But why on earth does Jesus choose to get the money from the mouth of a fish? I mean, if he wanted to, Jesus could have gone, oh, we need to pay the temple tax. Well, presto, here's some money I have from behind my ear. I mean, he could have conjured the money from anywhere. Why does he get it from the mouth of a fish? Are you ready for the answer? I have no idea and neither does anyone else. But the fact that he gets the money from somewhere, whether it was from a fish or behind his ear or wherever else he could have done it from, the fact that he gets the money has some important lessons to teach us. So let's uh, think about what we can know and just note the things we don't know. Look at verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. Now, uh, two drachma is roughly the same as half a shekel, and you would have seen half a shekel referred to in our first reading. And this temple tax was levied on all Israelites of age 20 or older. So, uh, having noted this, Jesus then engages Peter in a bit of Q&A. Verse 25, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asks, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answers. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. You see, uh, in the ancient world, apparently, the children of kings didn't pay tax. If a king was deciding who to tax, he's not going to tax his own kids. Why would he do that? Um, he taxes other people's kids and other people generally. That was the way of the first century, probably a bit, a bit different today in some contexts. But uh, there are perhaps a few modern parallels where being the child of a, ki of a king, you know, exempts you from certain things. So, for example, uh, my family visited Windsor Castle in the UK earlier this year. And so we drove to Windsor and we got in a queue. We waited in a queue, eventually got to the front of the queue. Then we paid some money to get into Windsor Castle. It was an interesting day. Now, if Prince William had turned up, do you think he would have had to queue? I don't think so. Would he have had to pay to get into one of his own houses? No, he'd just get straight in. You know, child of the king, you know, you get certain things which everyone else doesn't. 
So in the first century, children of kings were exempt from paying tax. Now think about it. Whose uh, house was the temple? Well, it's ultimately God's house, isn't it? Should Jesus then have to pay the temple tax? Implied answer, no. See, Jesus is the son of God. So he should be exempt according to this logic. Lesson one, Jesus is indicating by the fact that he doesn't need to pay the temple tax because he's God's son. He's highlighting yet again, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, that he is in fact the son of God. But then Jesus decides he's going to pay anyway. And in the bizarre manner described in verse 27, he says, but so that we may not cause offence, he says to Peter, go to the lake and throw in your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So Jesus uses the fish method for reasons I just don't know. But then he pays not only for himself, but he also pays for Peter. Now, what, what's going on? Why does he do that? What's going on here? Well, perhaps, you know, you've been out to a, a meal at a restaurant sometime and someone else says at the end, oh, don't you worry, I'll pick up the bill for all of us. And you, you get your bill paid. Or perhaps you've been out to a restaurant with someone else and you said, no, 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 let me pay for this one. Someone picks up the bill. Now, uh, Jesus certainly picks up the bill here for Peter with the temple tax, but he's doing more than that. Because the temple tax, you may or may not realise, was all about atonement. Now, atonement is the act of making amends for wrong or injury. And atonement in the Bible describes the, which, the means by which our God and humans can be reconciled. And uh, the temple tax atonement idea is based on the teaching, I believe, of Exodus chapter 30, which was our first reading. Moses, in Exodus 30, when he's teaching uh, God's words, post-Egypt, pre-promised land, says in verse 12 of Exodus 30 that each Israelite must pay the Lord a ransom for his life. They were to give half a shekel to atone for their life. Now, half a shekel is the same roughly as two drachmas. It's the same amount of money. Then in verse 16 of Exodus 30, it says, receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. Remember, the tent of meeting was the precursor of the temple. So the idea of the temple tax is it's for the upkeep of the temple, but it's also supposed to represent the paying of a ransom or, or atonement. That's what it meant. So Jesus is not just picking up the bill for Peter. Jesus is paying Peter's ransom. Jesus is paying for Peter's atonement. Now, is the penny dropping at this point, or the drachma dropping, you could say? You know, Jesus is pointing forward to what he's going to do on the cross, where he is going to pay for people's ransom, and he's going to make atonement for people. And this offer, of course, is... Oh, a bit of water. Um, this offer is, of course, received by seeking Jesus' forgiveness and following him. Now, this... Uh, Drachma in the mouth of the fish analogy uh, has its shortfalls. It, it makes that point that, you know, Jesus is paying it for us. But in terms of the temple tax, Peter actually could have found two drachma to pay his own tax. But there's no way he could have found enough money to pay for his sins, uh, that we need the cross for that. But what I think this fish incident and Jesus paying for Peter is pointing forward to is to what Jesus will do for Peter and everyone else potentially on the cross. Lesson here, Jesus dies on the cross so that we can be exempt from what we should pay. 
Now, looking around here, you all look like lovely, decent people to me. Uh, but compared to God's purity, I'm sad to say, you're all horrible sinners. And so am I. I mean, compared to each other, we're, we're lovely, I think, generally speaking. But uh, compared to the purity of God, and if we really considered ourselves and our motives and our actions and the things we've said and the things we've thought, you know, we, we realise um, how far forward we should. And I, I often can think about this by thinking about my car. I've probably shared this before, but I drive around a Hyundai of 30 and I'm quite happy with its state of cleanliness. Uh, that is until I pick up an older lady from church such as Ruth Gilmore or someone to drive her somewhere. As soon as Ruth gets in the car, I suddenly am embarrassed by the dust on the dashboard, the dirt on the floor, the rubbish in the side panels, etc., etc. You don't notice how dirty the car is until the purity of Ruth Gilmore gets into the car and you suddenly think, oh my gosh, I've got to do something about this. You know, we all seem pretty good to each other, but if we compare ourselves to the purity of God, we realise we all need uh, to be have our ransom paid, have our sins forgiven, etc., uh, etc. Et and in fact, we're all a bit like the North Korean uh, army soldier I'm going to tell you about in this story. Apparently, during the Korean War, uh, a South Korean Christian man was arrested by the communists from the north. Uh, they were going to kill him, but they found out that he ran an orphanage. And so the North Koreans uh, thought, well, we can't kill the, the head of an orphanage. He's probably doing important work. What we'll do is we'll get his 19-year-old son and kill him instead. So the North Koreans killed the 19-year-old son at the order of this particular North Korean officer. A little while later, this North Korean officer was actually captured by United Nations forces. He was tried and sentenced to death. But then the Christian man who ran the orphanage heard about this, and he went and asked that the North Korean officer be pardoned, but not only that, he asked whether he could take the North Korean officer into his own home as his son and, in effect, adopted him. Uh, it's an incredible story. And, um, but that's really like what God has done for us because we're responsible for the death of God's son, yet he, through the work of the death of God's son, offers to adopt us, uh, to have our ransom paid, our atonement made, our sins forgiven. It's, of course, absolute grace, like the, the man from the, the orphanage guy shows grace to that North Korean officer, God shows uh, grace to us. And it's this uh, grace idea which is being picked up, I guess, in this particular uh, story of the, Jesus paying for Peter's temple tax. Grace, uh, some of us are comfortable with, some of us aren't. I often find, I think, that very younger, pe younger people find this grace idea a difficult one because they all know you get saved by being good enough. That's what they all instinctively think, apparently, I'm told by scripture teachers like my wife. Uh, is grace, though. But also, I think older people sometimes struggle with this a bit because I sometimes feel as if older people who are pretty realistic realise all the mistakes they made in their life as they reflect back on their existence and think, I should have done this, shouldn't have done that. You know, how could God ever accept me? Well, of course, God can only accept you. You have made mistakes, but God can only accept us because of what Jesus uh, has done. We all need grace and we need to keep reminding ourselves that we're saved by grace, not works. There we go. But there's even a further lesson in this money in the mouth of the fish incident because uh, Jesus actually, in one sense, gives up his rights so as not to cause offence in paying the temple tax. You see, Jesus is arguing, I don't need to pay the temple tax because, in effect, I'm the, uh, implied, I'm the son of God. But he does it anyway so as not to cause people offence. Now, I think what's going on here is, imagine the following. I'm sure there are many people around who were interested in Jesus and thought, this, there could be something in this Jesus guy. I might go and listen to him. It hasn't actually twigged with them yet that he's a son of God. 
But if they're sort of interested in listening to Jesus, but then they find, oh, but he doesn't pay the temple tax, oh, yet another corrupt religious person, right? They might have thought. So Jesus, I think, pays the temple tax so that people won't have that stumbling block placed uh, in their way. And I guess the point here is sometimes it may be good for us to give up our rights in certain circumstances so as not to place a stumbling block in the way of other people or to make things difficult for other people. Um, to give perhaps a, a, a fairly simple example, um, it's perfectly appropriate for Christians to have a, a, a bit of alcohol in moderation but not get drunk. So you could say, Christians, oh, we've got a right to drink. But we may choose not to exercise that right if we're dining with, say, someone who's an alcoholic. Or if we're dining in a context, a part of the world, say Africa, where I've sometimes been, where the understanding is that Christians don't drink alcohol. Now, I could easily drink alcohol in Africa because I have a right to, but it's going to be a problem to my companions who are Christians who think Christians don't and will conclude that I might be something of a hypocrite. So there are occasions where we might want to give up our rights so as not to cause offence to others. Perhaps you can think up your own examples. Well, let's go on to the second half of the passage, the shorter lesson two, looking at Matthew 18, 1 to 5. And this section is, of course, all about greatness, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think people are often concerned with greatness. Some people would like to become great. Other people would like to meet great people. Well, Matthew 18, 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I wonder what sort of answer they were sort of expecting or looking for. Because in one sense, it's probably a dangerous question to ask. Because Jesus has only just said that he himself, the leader, is going to be killed. And he's also said the people who follow Jesus have to take up their cross. So in this sort of kingdom, I mean, do you really want to be the greatest? It doesn't sound like it might be the easiest thing to be the greatest. But I suspect that perhaps um, a lot of them still had their, their minds caught up in the idea that it's all about power and position and glory. Well, Jesus is going to kick in yet again with some more countercultural teaching because he describes greatness in terms of humility. Verse 2, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. Now, I think what we need to appreciate at this point that when the ancients thought of children, the first thing they didn't think of was, oh, lovely, how cute, how lovely. Um, they would see children generally as unimportant people lacking status. Okay? They had little rank or status. So when Jesus brings this little boy or girl, they think, hmm, low status individual, not that important. Uh, Jesus continues, he said, truly I tell you, Unless you change to become like little children, you know, low of rank, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, there's Jesus spelling out, child, lowly position. Um, whoever, takes, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Lesson, there is greatness in being humble. So humility, greatness in this, putting others first, pointing to Jesus, not ourselves, not building ourselves up in other people's eyes. Now, uh, humility is a distinctively Christian trait. Humility was not a valued quality in other ancient cultures. Quite the opposite. Other ancient cultures would have them building yourself up. I've, I've told this example before as well, but I think it's a great one. There is an ancient document called The Achievements of the Divine Augustus, referring to the Emperor Augustus of the Roman Empire, Augustus Caesar. And this document lists the 35, 35 key areas of the emperor's 
accomplishments, things like military victories, public awards, building projects. And the document was supposed to be inscribed on bronze, publicly displayed. Who wrote this all about Augustus? Augustus. You know, he, he was his own best publicist. Uh, humility wasn't a big thing in the Roman Empire. But it's the same today. Uh, humility needed to be learnt then, and I think humility needs to be learnt now. It doesn't come naturally to us. We need to pray that God would change us so that we would be humble. Now, if you think about humility, you might sort of think, hold on, but what about, can we do great things for God? Is it wrong to want to do great things for the kingdom of God? Uh, well, I was thinking about this. Uh, Michael Green, one of the commentators I read when preparing this passage, uh, quite a well-known English Christian from last century, said, humility is not, a matter of, is not a matter of suppressing our drive or hiding our gifts. I think he's of the view that we can be very keen to use whatever gifts we have in service of God. Once again, that it's in service of God, not in service of our own image. An American preacher who I uh, saw a quote from, S.D. Gordon, said, uh, get every qualification you can, but then use it for God. And so I think the idea is that we want to be humble as Christians, we can still strive to do great things for God, but we're trying to point people towards God, not ourselves. We're not trying to show how great we are or, or anything like that. Well, finally and very briefly, we read the value of welcoming those who are humble. Verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, I don't think this is specifically about welcoming little children, I think it's about welcoming those who are, are humble or lowly in status, which might include children, of course. We shouldn't avoid the humble or the lowly or the lowest status people we come across in our lives thinking, oh, I'd rather go and talk to someone else. Or if we do talk to a humble, lowly status person, we shouldn't always be looking over their shoulder to see whether there's someone more important or influential who we can talk to. We need uh, to welcome and value all people, whatever their level or rank. So I think valuing humility is the lesson here. We need to seek it ourselves. We need to appreciate it in others. And we need to welcome those who are humble. Let me conclude. Quite an education for Peter here. But, I mean, has he been educating you as well? Could this be educating Stephen or educating, insert your own name here? See, our default mode is that we think we need to be good enough to earn God's favour and we like to promote ourselves. But the lesson here is we're not good enough for God. We need to receive God's grace and we shouldn't self-promote. We should show humility. So if I was trying to summarise the big idea in these two passages put together, it's about grace and humility, receiving grace and showing humility. There's our lesson for today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help each of us to reflect on what this lesson has to say to us. Uh, anything we need to learn or anything we need to relearn. Lord, we do pray that we will be grateful recipients of your grace because we need it. And Lord, we also pray that we would seek to be humble. Perhaps we will strive as Christians, but we strive for you and for others, not for our self-promotion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.